0: Uh, this morning uh, we're going to wrap up the book of Romans. This is the 30th sermon on the book of uh, Romans. So uh, I hope you have your Bible open, uh, your smart device, phone, whatever it is you use to, to follow along. And uh, we started this back in April of last year and finally bringing this to full fruition. I have, I have some friends and buddies, peers, that uh, have taken three to five years to uh, preach through Romans. I have other friends that have done uh, Roman in its entirety and in as few as eight to ten sermons, but uh, I think 30 has uh, pretty well covered it, uh, so I'm looking forward to uh, wrapping this up and uh, considering what the Lord would have us to, uh, to look at later. Um, As we come to Romans 16, I can't help but think of of a quote by Churchill, Prime Minister of the UK, and uh, it was three years into World War II, the Allies had their first victory. Churchill called it the Battle of Egypt, he dubbed it the Battle of Egypt. And as Churchill's Prime Minister was speaking to the House of Commons after that great victory, uh, he made the quote made the statement now this is not the end nor is it the beginning of the end it is perhaps the end of the beginning I've always thought about that think about that phrase often the end of the beginning the end of what's just beginning Whenever I come to some places in Scripture, for instance, the creation account back in Genesis in chapter 1, the creative acts of God, God being the agent in, uh, in creation, I think back to, uh, to how that creative work is, is finalized in Genesis chapter 2 in verse 2. The author says that, uh, that he completed his work on the seventh day, that by the seventh day, God completed. His work. It's interesting because we know that uh, elsewhere in scripture it says that God is making all things new. That the creative work of God was not just, just six days back in the past uh, long ago when God initiated what we would call the universe today. We know that God is a God of recreation And so he completed his work on on the seventh day, it says, but we know that there was far more to be done, far more to be seen, far more to be experienced and and understood. God continued creation and the work of recreation. Jesus cried from the cross, it is finished. What was finished? Well, what came to fruition in the life and the ministry and the death, burial, and resurrection of, of Christ, what, what was completed finally was, was this Abrahamic covenant, these promises that, that were made to Abraham, that all of these messianic prophecies of old, now then, all of this, you will see, all of this is completed in me, in Christ Jesus, he said. It is finished, everything that God foretold about the Messiah, the promises to Abraham that he would be a father to nations, it is done. But it wasn't really finished, was it? Not, not a finalized form that, that we would think of, but uh, from that day forward for 2,000 years to where we are today, uh, we see the work of God continuing. We see visually this transformation of of people's lives. uh, We see the the becoming of, of nations, becoming the people of God. That what was told to Abraham that he would be a father to nations has in fact come through, come true through the life and the ministry. The death, the burial, the resurrection, the empowerment of his church by the power of the Holy Spirit. Where now it's not just Jew, but it's Gentile, it's barbarian, it's Greek, it's weak, strong, wise, foolish, all that under the banner of Christ are, are drawn into fellowship with God the Father through Christ Jesus. So it seems that the work of the gospel, this work that has been entrusted to us, the church, it is a never-ending task until the day of the Lord, until Christ comes again, you and I as the church are engaged in a never-ending gospel mission. Listen, that's when the church becomes a powerful presence in the world, when we understand the purpose of the church, our mission, that we are a people called into the army of God. The church, is not, the church was not established to, to accommodate and to appease the, the desires of consumers, but the church was established that the ministry of Christ and the presence of Christ might continue in the world. Paul, obviously, as we've read through Romans, Paul has a very high regard for the gospel. Not only does he see in it the power of God unto salvation. Not only does he see this as the fulfillment of all the promises that that were made to Abraham, but he sees this as being the very thing that drives us as a people of God. And so even as we come to the very end of Romans, what we think of maybe at the end of a letter, what we think of is perhaps a farewell. It's in fact just a beginning. When we think he might be saying, goodbye. Paul is offering greetings 19 times. He uses that word in this last chapter. I greet you. And so what I want us to do in our time this morning is I want us to to look at this gospel. If if I understand it as as being the power of God into salvation, if I understand it uh, to be a never-ending work that has been entrusted to us as a people of God, there's some other things that Paul is reminding us of. Other things that Paul would have us to notice, because we know that he's that he's going to go to Jerusalem first, drop off the famine relief offering that was taken up by Gentiles to give to their Jewish brethren, their Jewish believers back in Jerusalem. But then Paul's desire is to travel to Rome so that he might go to Spain. So between that period, what Paul in this chapter, what he wants us to notice, and especially in regard to the gospel. He wants us to understand that the gospel facilitates strategic relationships. The gospel facilitates strategic relationships. Now nowhere is this more evident than in the first 16 verses. I'm not going to read all 16 verses. You can begin to peruse through these as easily as I can, but when you look at these first 16 verses, and also the names that are mentioned in verses 21 through through 23, Paul makes mention of 34 individuals, 34 individuals that Paul alludes to. Now, in these first 16 verses, he greets 26 people. Two of them are, are unnamed, and then there's two households that he mentions as well. And then the remaining verses that I've alluded to, verses 21 through 23, Paul makes mention of eight names. And these are eight individuals that are traveling with him. So greetings are being offered to 26 individuals at the church in Rome. Paul's trying to build up credibility. It's really a dangerous thing when you start greeting and giving thanks to certain individuals. When you start trying to list those, there's always the risk that you're going to miss someone. But what Paul is trying to do, this church that he didn't establish, this church that he wants to come to, that they might be the base of operations for his Spanish ministry, but for his ministry to Spain, Paul's trying to build up some credibility, some connections here with people that, that we have relationships with, with whom we share relationships with one another. So 26 names he mentions in Rome. Now what I want you to notice, there's, there's a couple of things that I've I want you to notice really three things that I want you to notice. As Paul is greeting all of these individuals, what emerges as we, if we were to examine those, those names, what you, would, what you would notice first is there is great diversity among those names. There is great diversity among those that Paul is greeting at, at the church in Rome. Now, I'm not going to start listing the names. You can look at these as easily as as I can. But what I want you to notice is the diversity in this group. The church is not a homogenous society. The church is not a homogenous society. But the church is intended to be, and what it was in Rome was a conglomeration of people from all walks of life, all kinds of backgrounds who share a common faith in Christ Jesus. Among those that are listed, there are Jews, there are Gentiles. Two-thirds of the names that are listed are of slave origin, not unusual in that day and time. Two-thirds of slave origin. Some are single, some are married. Some, uh, in some cases, Paul listens, uh, lists an, an entire household. Some that he mentions are wealthy. Most of them are very poor. It's a people of diverse backgrounds. From every walk of life, those are the healthiest congregations that, that have a people of all ages, a people of all kinds of backgrounds. Now, second thing I would have you noticed about this catalog of names that, that Paul has here Not only is there great diversity among them, but you will also notice that they are commended for their service and engagement. With every name, he says something personal about them. He mentions how they are of benefit to him and how they are of benefit to the kingdom of God. You'll notice that some of these, they're they're those who provide financial support. Paul was very dependent in his travels and his missionary journeys. Paul was very dependent upon certain individuals. Yes, certainly <laughs> dependent upon the Lord. Uh, but in, but in real time practical terms, in Paul's journeys and travels, he depended upon some individuals that funded his missionary work. And so, among these, there are those that are benefactors. They work for the benefit of. Of others they give and they contribute they serve for the benefit of others there are those that are capable as he lists here there are these that that are capable of, of hosting house churches and then he mentions some that that are workers fellow kinsmen fellow prisoners what what's really interesting to me in this listing of of names catalog of names whenever he talks about workers those who are workers that word is most often used in association with the female names on these lists. And the word that Paul is using here is these who are workers and the females that they're listing with. It's a, it's a word that is unique to Paul himself. Paul's not using a word that, that, that describes domestic chores and working around the house. These ladies do a wonderful job housekeeping. That's, that's not what Paul is talking about. The word that Paul uses, these workers in association with these women, they're doing the same work I'm doing. When Paul describes the labor of his work, the task of his work, especially when he's writing to the church at Corinth, and Paul would would make the declaration, I have worked harder than all the other apostles. He uses the very same word from there right here in this passage to describe these women. Doing the work of ministry. And so these individuals with whom Paul has, has, has established relationships, these are, these are strategic relationships. One's a deacon, another one's an apostle. These are strategic in the works of God. And the third thing Paul would have us notice about, about these strategic relationships, Paul would have us to notice that, that each of these names, there, among these names, there is a connectedness. There is a connectedness among them for the furtherance of the gospel. Listen, Paul understands that the work of the gospel, he understands that the progress of the gospel is going to be accomplished by a network of individuals who are committed to Christ, uniquely committed to Christ, specifically committed to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in their life. Though they're of diverse background, they share in a common commitment to Jesus Christ, individuals who who realize they have been given spiritual gifts and who use those gifts. In the work of the kingdom, and they proclaim the word of God in word and deed. Paul realizes this work is far greater than something I can do. This, this work that God has entrusted do, to us, it's not going to be built. It's not going to be accomplished on the back of one personality, uh, something that is dependent upon one person, their personality, their strength, their wherewithal, their personality, their creativity. But it's going to require a network of people of diverse background listen this is how the gospel is is multiplied exponentially among people groups where you and I in our common commitment to Jesus Christ in the midst of all of our diverse background you go where your feet take you in the course of the day understanding that you are the presence of Christ where you are and I'm going to use my spiritual gifts in service to the Lord, that my life might be a proclamation in word and deed of a transforming work that only God is able to do. Paul understands the power of fellowship, Paul understands the power of the gospel. When it is embraced by every individual and they exercise their gifts. Listen, church, this is one of the biggest mistakes we make, I think. Where we we read the Bible and we read like Romans 16, we read this and we ascribe to these personalities, we ascribe to these individuals, these 34 individuals, some kind of hierarchy and status that is greater than us. These are just common people. These are just everyday people that God has called, that God has saved, given them unique gifts for the purpose of His kingdom being expanded and the gospel being expanded. And whenever you just say, "Well, I don't have anything to bring to the table," ah, my gift's really not not important. Then we are never truly everything we could be when any one of us sits back and says, Well, I really, you know, what I can do really isn't that that important. One of, the, one of my favorite stories that captures this well is the parable of the ten parable of the 10 jugs. It's a, it's, it's a story from Japanese folklore. And it's a story about these, these 10 Japanese gentlemen that they were going to celebrate the new year with a, a hot sake party. And they agreed they were going to have it at this one particular gentleman's house, their one friend's house. And, and, and they realized that, that, you know, they were modest, men of modest means and no one of them had the means to provide the wine, the sake for, for all the rest. And so what they agreed to is that each one of us on New Year's Eve, each one of us will bring our our finest sake, and then we'll we'll pour it together into the, the sake pot and heat it. Well, that was agreed upon, and New Year's Eve approached, and one gentleman thought, well, you know, man, those guys are my buddies, but I really hate to give up one of my best bottles of sake for them. My supply's running a little low. So what, what I think I'm going to do is I think nobody will ever know the difference. Uh, all those other nine guys, they're bringing their psych. What I'm going to do is I'm going to take my bottle and I'm just going to fill it up with water. And that way when I pour it in there, nobody, nobody will ever know the difference. The problem is, is that the remaining nine did the same thing. So for New Year's Eve, they celebrated the incoming of the new year with a hot water party. (laughs) But it's true in the life of the church as well. When you withhold your giftedness, when you withhold what God through his power has entrusted to you, whether great, whether small, that's not for for us to measure and to evaluate. When you withhold your gift, all we really get as a church is a watered-down version of what we could be. Every individual, every commitment to Christ, every gift is of vital importance in the life of the church. One of the talks I give annually to our Texas Tech football team it has to do with being a good teammate. What does it take to be a good teammate? And it's along the same theme, the same lines about every individual in this organization being important to our success. I mean whether it's student trainers, student equipment man, everybody, every individual, if this team is going to be successful we have to have an appreciation for every member of the team. And so I always ask them three questions. And talking about what is it that makes for a good teammate? What is it that makes for a good teammate? And this, listen, this applies to businesses. What is it that makes for a good employee? What is it that makes for a good teammate when you're talking about sports? What is it that makes, what is it that makes for a good church member? When you're, making, when, when you're talking about what, what it is to appreciate the role that each and every one of us have. And so I asked the team to ask themselves the question, these are contemplative, thoughtful questions that each one has to ask, what is it, what is it that I'm doing that is hurting my team? If I'm going to be honest, what is it that I'm doing that is hurting my team? Maybe you're being negative, maybe you're you're complaining. Maybe you're, maybe you're sowing seeds of discord, but behind the scene, maybe you're undermining the coach. Maybe you got, maybe you have, maybe you have bad body language, you know, body language. It tells a story. We had a player about 10 years ago, young kid, linebacker. Unfortunately, he was thrown. It was really unfair to him. He's a linebacker, and he was, he was thrown. As a true freshman, he was thrown. We had a lot of injuries at that position, and this, this kid was thrown into the starting lineup. Did terrible, as you would have expected. Well, the next week, all these other guys, three other guys come back uh, off the injury list, and, and this particular young man, he, he drops down on the depth chart. Well, his, his body language at practice on... On Monday's terrible. And I, I happen to be standing by him on the sidelines at practice and, and he's crying. Pastor Bobby, can I talk to you? I said, yeah, yeah, come on, let's walk down here. So we walked down there to the end, away from everyone. He said, well, I just, you know, I'm so upset. I don't know if you saw today, I'm number five on, on the depth chart. And I said, yeah, I saw that. He said, well, I just wanted to talk to you about it. And I said, I called him by name and I said, listen, I said, "This is a grown man's game." I said, "You got to get your big boy pants on." I said, "This ain't middle school and high school anymore." I said, "This is a big boy's game," and I bet I said, "You better strap your gear on like a man and tighten up your helmet, cinch it up tight." Because I said, "That body language of yours—that you're just pouting up that you're doing, walking up and down the sidelines with your head down." I said, that's going to be on film. That's going to be on everything. When they review film practice, practice film, all this is going to show up. Doesn't look good. He said, well, all I really wanted you to do was pray for me. (laughs) I said, no, it it isn't about praying. It's about growing up. About growing up. If you're in an organization, you have something to contribute. You've got to grow up. No matter what the role Yeah. Second question you have to ask yourself, besides what am I doing that's hurting my team? What am I doing? What am I not doing that's hurting my team? What am I not doing? What should I be doing that I'm not doing? Am I cheering on my teammates? Am I cheering on? Am I cheering on our successes as as an organization? And the third thing you, you have to ask is what action steps do I Uh, what action steps do I need to take to be a better teammate, better person, better leader? What are my action steps? What do I do to be intentional, to engage? Maybe it's appreciating your role, setting ego aside. Appreciating your role, appreciating the role of of those around you. Yeah, the student manager, the student equipment manager, student trainers. Everybody has a vital role. Uh, The scout team, everybody has a role. Embracing your role. Because every role is significant. Every role is vital. I normally do this talk. I'm talking about being a good teammate. I do it. On a team on a day when we have a team meeting with every other resource that is has provided those students academic people speak to them trainers speak to them strength coaches speak to them I speak to them and the last thing I say because I'm always last is that is that we have provided you with every resource that is necessary to being successful as a student-athlete whether it's sports psychology whether it's training nutrition coaching Your mental health, your spiritual health, we've provided every resource. And there is not a single person that is responsible for results you don't like, for work that you don't do. There is not a single person responsible for results you don't like because of work that you don't do. Paul has a great appreciation for what every person brings to the table, that there is a strategic connectedness between each one of us as we are seeking to be on mission, as we are seeking to be the presence of Christ in our community. Second thing Paul says about this gospel, not only does it facilitate strategic relationships, but it necessitates doctrinal stability. Now, notice what Paul says here. Now, I urge you, brothers and sisters, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teachings which you learned and turned away from them for such people are slaves not of our Lord Jesus they were slaves of Christ Jesus they would they would be concerned with his gospel only not of our Lord Christ but of their own appetites they're concerned about their own kingdoms little kingdoms that that they are building for themselves And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. For the report of your obedience has reached everyone. Therefore, I'm rejoicing over you. But I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. Paul's saying, listen, what has been entrusted to you, this gospel that you have experienced, it has brought you to obedience. That's what the gospel does. When the gospel is rightly received, when the gospel is rightly preached and taught, When the gospel is rightly received by the hearers, by those who are being taught, by those uh, to whom it is being proclaimed, it results in obedience. So Paul says, this is very significant, what has been entrusted to you. This is something worthy of, of preservation. In fact, back in Romans 6, if you'll remember, in verse 17, Paul mentions that this form of teaching uh paul mentions that form of teaching to which you were entrusted and because of it you became obedient to the lord you see what paul is referring to a form of teaching he's he's referring to to an agreed upon doctrine that is being taught now some people will say uh well I'm, you know i'm not interested in doctrine." Now, I don't know if that's arrogance or ignorance, one, because, uh, I mean, and, and to say I'm not interested in, in doctrine, it, it, it really is short-sighted. And, and I think some people say that just because it sounds real spiritual, oh, I'm not interested in doctrine. Because what Paul is holding forth is that, is that what has been proclaimed, this apostolic theology that I have passed on to you and trusted to you, Paul says this is something that the apostles have have agreed to together. We came together at the Jerusalem conference in Acts chapter 15. We came together and to establish once and for all, what is this gospel we're going to proclaim? Is it truly for Jew and Gentile, barbarian and Greek, weak, strong? Is it truly for anyone and everyone that will respond in faith and trust? And when it was resolved once and for all, that became a body of knowledge. That became a body of doctrinal theology. Well what is it? Well, Paul says over in First Corinthians, First Corinthians fifteen, verse three, for I handed down to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep, fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. There is this body of apostolic theology. Listen, church that has been handed down from generation to generation to where you and I are today. The preaching that I offer to you is is the, the, uh, the theology of the apostles. I was trained in a grammatical historical tradition for the purpose of passing down this gospel, this apostolic gospel, the gospel of the apostles. And it's been entrusted to you. So I hope you can appreciate the significance and the weight and the gravitas that we give to the teaching ministry of our church. I mean, we've assembled pastor and staff, we have assembled here individuals that are trained under this tradition of grammatical, historical understanding. Listen, that's why we are so protective of the teaching ministry of this church because of what is being handed down. We understand as pastor and staff, we understand our, our biblical role and how it's prescribed that we are, as Paul said to Timothy, that that we are overseers. I'm someone, as the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 13, in verse 17, that I'm someone who watches over your soul. That's how much I love you and care for you, that I'm watching over your soul. What you are taught, the information, the gospel that you are receiving. And so I have surrounded myself with staff of like mind and like understanding, of like training, 94 hours of graduate graduate training, uh, 30 plus hours of postgraduate training in matters of theology. And the reason I was, I was willing to go through those rigors of academic training because I understood the weight and the gravitas of what was being entrusted to me as a pastor, one who cares for souls. That I would have to give an account of what is being taught to our church. Listen, when our guys ask individuals to be Sunday school teachers, we're, we're not asking you to be independent contractors, or man, you read this great man. I read this fascinating book. Some uh, some uh, former NASA engineer figured out a code in the Bible. I'm gonna teach a class on that. Well, no, you're not. I'm an overseer of the souls, the care for souls, and will give an account of what is taught in the teaching ministries of our of our church. And when any of our guys approach you, any of our staff approach you about taking on a position of, of teaching, when they recognize in you maybe a gift of teaching, teaching listen, we, we are never just going to throw you to the wolves. We will provide you with the very best of materials. We know good resources. We are trained in this. Just as you would go to the doctor who has the training. Listen, when I talk about seminary training and theological training, I'm not talking about mail order degrees. I'm talking about attending places of accreditation that have the same accrediting agencies as Texas Tech University. It's a people who know their craft because we are the provider of souls, the carer of souls. And we're going to put in front of you when we ask you to teach, we're going to put in front of you materials that have been reviewed, went to school. We're going to put in front of you materials that are written by people we know People with whom I went to, to seminary, Jim Dennison. We're going to put Jim Dennison's material in front of you, PhD in, in, in philosophy. We're going to put in front of you uh, literature, Sunday school material written by Howard K. Batson, New Testament scholar. Dwayne Brooks, New Testament scholar. That's how, that's the weight that we give to the teaching ministry of our church. Known sources. That will entrust you and equip you and train you in this gospel. A gospel that has to be protected. Let's close here. As did Paul with a doxology of praise. This gospel and the proper understanding of it always elicits a doxology of praise. Now, to him who is able to establish you. Now, I want you to notice the stacking effect. Just as Paul stacked his teaching throughout the book of Romans in verses, chapters 1 through 4, 5 through 8, 9 through 11, and 12 through the end of the the book now, Paul is stacking up this doxology to reflect those very teachings. Now, to him who is able to establish you. This is what the gospel's done in your life. According to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which has been uh, kept secret for long ages past, but now has been disclosed. This gospel has fulfilled every promise God ever made, but has now been disclosed and through the scriptures of the prophets in accordance with the commandment of the eternal God has been made known to all the nations. This gospel is available to anyone and everyone leading to the obedience of faith. To the only wise God through Jesus Christ be the glory forever, amen. This is what has been entrusted to you. What generations, what those before Christ would have loved to have known, we know. The mystery of God's redemptive purposes have been made known through Jesus Christ. Donald Gray Barnhouse tells the story in conclusion here, Donald Gray Barnhouse tells the story of of an assistant he always valued, a woman by the name of Elizabeth. He said she was the most comprehensive assistant he had ever had, and he said, said, but I never noticed she dated anyone, single woman, never dated, and he said, you know, I actually like that because I lived in fear of her getting married and leaving, and he said, I just hated the idea of losing her, but but he said, one day I, I, I pulled up in the church parking lot one Sunday morning. Somebody said, hey, have you heard the word Elizabeth and Max are getting married? He said, well, I, did. I didn't believe it. Getting nearly to the church, and, uh, to the door, and somebody else said, hey, did you hear Max and Elizabeth are married? He's I I just couldn't believe it. So I walked into my office, and sure enough, there's Max and Elizabeth. grinning ear to ear, and she's showing me her engagement ring. They marry, and they move off as missionaries. He said, in retrospect, I should have seen it. In retrospect, I remembered seeing her having dinner with Max one time. I remember her saying something about him one time. And he said, it's the same way with the mysteries of God. He said, before Christ, their eyes were, their vision was fixed a certain way to think that God's salvation was only about them. But through Christ, their eyes have been opened to see that it is for anyone and everyone. They see in retrospect this mystery of God that is now available to all who would respond in faith and trust. That's what we do, church, when we go out daily when we go into our worlds, we are making evident what was once a mystery. Through deed and action and word, we make known the gospel of Christ. You are a part of a never-ending work. Let's pray together. Father, might we truly be an enduring presence in our world, in a world that is hopeless, in a world that is filled with despair, I pray, Lord, that our lives would be a pronouncement of another kind of news, good news, a good news of redemption, a good news of hope, a good news of transformation. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.